This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The more my company grows, the harder it is to stay focused on our core product. I need to master DEI, ESG, MA, even how to adapt to hybrid working. The more hats I wear, the more I need Aon. They bring their whole team to the table and give me access to great minds in each discipline. So as my business grows, my knowledge expands and I see things more clearly. Better decisions. Aon. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us. I am Matt Harris, Seton Tucker on vacation. Isn't she lucky? You can find us, Murdoch Podcast, Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com and uh we haven't had him on in a while timing and whatnot and we've been busy and he's been busy but he is here now our legal analyst john snyder hello john hello everyone hello out there in true crime land <laughs> uh, snyder has been both uh, both sides of murder trials he's been a district attorney and he has been a defense attorney um we'll get to some emails for him in a minute and uh his breakdown and reaction to the trial a uh, couple things of note to start with uh first of all Alec Murdoch was moved to a protective custody location and I believe there's uh let me make sure I get this right I believe 28 people in the places where he is now being housed uh the state is not saying where he is, the review board made this recommendation of a statewide protective custody classification for him. It's a four-member board, South Carolina Department of Corrections, Security, Mental Health, and Classification Experts. The inmates in this unit, as the quote, have validated protective concerns uh, and are placed in a specialized unit to separate them from the general population, the agency said in a statement. Their location is not disclosed for safety and security reasons. There's 28 inmates, as I said. John, some people, and by people, I mean yappy people on social media, try to paint this as, well, there he goes, getting special privilege again. My first thought is, I don't think there's a lot of people that want to give him influence anymore. Law enforcement can't be a fan after what his defense attorneys were saying about law enforcement. He's a convicted uh, murderer of his wife and son. He's stolen a lot of money from friends, family, and a state trooper. So it would strike me as inconsistent or odd if he was getting a break in the prison system. Your thoughts? I don't view this as being a break at all. I mean, one of the factors of being a part of the criminal justice system on the defendant side is Everybody that 
has sentenced him wants to make sure he serves his time. And so putting him in the protective custody section, all, all it does is make sure that he's there for, for life and that there's not some accident or some issue that occurs that, that might end his life earlier or cause him to get a more sympathetic treatment somewhere down the line. So I, I think for all former police officers, all, you know, probably former doesn't happen very often, former prosecutors, they're going to, they're going to be in a little bit more of a protective location than your, your run of the mill uh, felon. I would not call it special treatment. I would, I certainly don't think he has any friends on the side of the people that, <laughs> that make those decisions. I think this is, this is him actually being treated exactly like any other inmate would be with the fact pattern of, of their charges and convictions. We certainly don't know uh, because there are drug charges out there. We, we don't know. I mean, I'm not, I hate to speculate, but I'm going to, I mean, he might be talking about who he bought drugs for or sold drugs to. We don't know. And in that case, you want him in protective. Okay. Let me move to uh, cousin Eddie. I went to Columbia for Eddie Smith's hearing. It was good to see some old reporter faces like Will from Fitz News and Ann Emerson and others that I, the old gang was back together. Uh, John Monk, the reporter as well. Um, and John Metters was the, the attorney general's representative who was uh, saying that Eddie should have his bond put back in place. And he was the one who did the rebuttal closing. Uh, Eddie just spent 235 days in jail. He's got the state grand jury cases going on. Um, he's got the suicide for hire, whatever that is going to be called Labor Day shooting of Ellick going on in their Hampton or Colleton County. Remember Eddie got 437 checks allegedly worth about two and a half million from 2013 to 2021. He gained about 55 pounds. He told, and judge Newman, there's another face that we know. Judge Newman was the judge. Even asked, he said, Eddie, how much weight have you gained? I'm like, oh, geez, Judge. <laughs> 55 pounds. Um, and he said he's just in kind of bad health. He struggled to walk. It looked a little bit. He's got two titanium rods in his back. And by putting on the weight, he said he hasn't been able to exercise because he's in pain and the pain hasn't been managed because he's been in prison. Uh, his He says his sugar's up. He says his blood pressure's up. So he's going to go and i think uh april 21st uh is the next hearing we don't know we have no idea what's going to end up first in court and what's going to be second and third because he's got all these different things going on but he is going to go back gps monitored go to church certain when he's trucking you know certain places he has to go uh and there's other parameters and quite frankly i think that is fair especially since law enforcement and the state said he should have to get his bond back remember it was uh, repealed because he he claims to doing some uh, deliveries with his truck without telling his state beforehand. He also allegedly had money in the bank when he said he had none, but he may not have known that. I don't know. But he's no real threat to society, that is for sure. So, And he's not been convicted of anything. So, by the way, uh, 1985, he got some stolen goods. He was in a fight in like 2000, but he has, doesn't have this long history. It's, it's just kind of getting swept up in the Alec Murdoch thing. Not that the discounts some of the serious charges, but I think we're all, I, I assume, John, you would be in agreement that he's not a threat to society. To have him out on bond 
with a house arrest seems fair. One, Judge Newman knows what, what the law is and knows how to apply it properly. We've, we've definitely seen that. And with this, I, there, other than kind of our, our pretrial belief that he might have been some way involved in what happened at Moselle, there is no quote, you know, danger to society at large. And so I think I think these these strictures, these controls on his behavior and coming and going are consistent with what what other defendants in South Carolina would get with with a similar level of charges. Even even the quote violent nature of the um, roadside shooting. The shooting that may have been a the result of a, a drug-induced bender, not necessarily a criminal pattern of violence. So, I, so I, I think I think bonds appropriate in this case with those particular controls in place. Yeah, the charge is a you know consistent suicide. He doesn't an assault and battery. He doesn't have any attempted murder or thing like that. He still says he didn't shoot him. He shot up in the air. We shall see when that comes out. What I'm interested though is uh, when Creighton Waters appeared in open court with two fellas. I don't need to mention their name because they're not convicted of anything, but two guys were arrested for other drug type things. He said those two guys worked with Eddie in this stream of drugs where El Cape Eddie, Eddie would go to these guys or the Waterboro Cowboys and get drugs and then bring them back. What's interesting to me is will they go try to find out who Eddie was getting drugs from if they, they, they might be able to prove that he was given to Alec. They may need that just in case of an appeal. They want to make sure they have these drug charges on top of Alec so he doesn't get out. But if he's talking about where he got drugs from, that seems kind of a dangerous situation to be out there floating around. But I don't know. Well, my, my, most likely, the, you know, whoever these people are are probably already very well known to law enforcement. So. If Eddie's like, I get him from Jimbo. Well, law enforcement probably knows that Jimbo is out there. And so I don't know. Eddie's not at a huge risk, but with the, the high prof profile, the case, the murder case getting such scrutiny nationally, anybody that's ever been in business or around Alec is, is either in hiding or, you know, just waiting for, the next shoe to drop it right. would be my estimation side note that we'll get started here this the state said that he was cooperative through before the trial during the trial the, the ag's office met with him they said many times during the trial to see if they were going to use him or not and they believed that he was going to be truthful they just decided that they didn't need him but that got get garnered him points with the, the ag's office okay let's go to What's going to happen next with Alec Murdoch and the appeals process? Uh, they are, of course, appealing. How does this work in, in, in South Carolina? The notice of appeal has been filed. And then, a, 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 not arcane rules, but a, but a set of rules applies to appellate cases. And it will say, it, like, a clock has begun running. So the clock... You had to get your appeal in within 10 days from the conviction. That's been done. Then the defense has a certain number of days where they have to submit their issues on appeal. And so that will be a court filing that will have 
my guess is maybe up to 60 or more, quote, errors that occurred during the trial that would be grounds for the conviction to be overturned and then remanded for a new trial is the ultimate goal that they're seeking. And so they will lay out what all the issues are and they'll be juror excusing, you know, objection to the failure for the judge to grant their objection over X. You know, it'll be, it'll be all kinds of things. And it may be that they're, they're under larger, like judge Newman aired and grant in, in allowing in admissible evidence. And then it'll break down into those sub things, which is which is where I'm 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 getting my number guess from. Yes, I would think the major one they're going to go with is why was that all this uh, what appeared to be character talk, not to motive. That that'll be the big argument, right? Uh, well, I mean, it, it'll be an argument, but Judge Newman is no spring chicken, and this isn't his first rodeo. So when he says an open court. Well, counselor, you open the door. That may be fatal to the the potential issue on appeal. When I say it was a, a big thing, I didn't mean necessarily a winning thing, but it might be their major main point. Well, that's right. I mean, it's something they're going to hang their hat on. They're going to hang their hat on the juror change out. They're going to hang their hat on, you know, all, all kinds of things. Uh, and it may be even little things, but it may be enough to cause the South Carolina Court of Appeals to grant a new trial is the goal. The Court of Appeals will hear this, and that is like a, like a Supreme Court type setup. Yeah. So so you have you have kind of three three courts. You have the trial court, then you have a, a, the Court of Appeals, which is an intermediate level court, and then you have the Supreme Court. They have the final say. So you could. You could win at the, and this is kind of interesting, you could win in the appellate court, but then the state could appeal and say the appellate court was wrong and then let the Supreme Court hear it. That will be as far as it gets. Unless, and at some point, there there becomes some federal issue, and then they'll you know do it again. They'll run it through the you know, federal district court, the circuit, and then the Supreme Court, theoretically. And the appeals court is not deciding whether or not it was a wrong decision or right decision. It's just purely legal, correct? So they are a court of record, not a court of evidence. Okay. So they won't weigh in on anything other than the the straight legal issues. So there there won't be a rehearing or retrial. Mm -hmm. There won't be them asking for the, the state's office to submit a new brief or say we need more evidence They're they are only going to look on the record on appeal. So that is everything that is provided by each party. That's the parameters of their, you know, what, what they can look at. And I have heard it's pretty hard to overturn these things. Is that true? Unless there's some glaring issue, which I did not see in the trial and judge Newman ran the court really well. I don't see I don't see any really winning issues on appeal. You have a right to an appeal and um I think is a little different than Lafitte's trial in federal court with with the jury issue there. That's that might be reversible. That might 
get him a new trial. What was the jury issue? I'm forgetting now. Uh, where the judge basically dismissed a juror before the defense counsel really kind of oh, yeah. knew that the judge was just going to dismiss them from the, the panel gotcha. as opposed to just, you know, having, having a hearing. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Okay, let's roll to, because we haven't had you on since the verdict, which seems like 100 years ago, but it hasn't been that long. Um, I'm sure it seems longer for Alec. Your major takeaways and any questions, uh, how you uh, Monday morning quarterback this thing, or what you found, uh, you know, that was intriguing. So I had my opinions on how they did it, but I think at the end of the day, the defense's rebuttal testimony and the state's rebuttal testimony just kind of solidified. I was personally shocked at how quickly they came back with the decision. I was not expecting that after many weeks of a trial. And, you know, I think, I think the jury, they knew what they were going to do when they walked back there. And that's all credit to the state. I thought the closing arguments were compelling, but, you know, again, in, in any time you're trying a jury trial, you don't know what's, what's going to stick, what's not going to stick. When you're on the prosecution side, you, the whole time in your head, you're making sure that you, you hit every mental check box that you needed to, to to get the conviction on the evidence side. And then on the defense side, when you're arguing, you literally are like, I am going to make good faith arguments and hope that one or two jurors finds merit in them. And that, that, you know, so you, it, it, again, you don't know one of the reasons most cases settle out. One of the reasons most cases in criminal side plea out is because you don't know what's going to happen once you impanel a jury. And so it's a, it's a great way to get a clear result. Yeah. When they went back there, there was uh, from what I remember was two, uh, not guilty, one undecided, but it didn't take long to flip them. So let me, okay, so let me go to some. Uh, were you any other comments before I get you some questions from uh, listeners? I'm thankful the whole time that we've been doing this podcast, we've talked about let let the process work. 
let the defense make their arguments and then the evidence applied to the law will lead to a result that the jury finds. And I think, I think they did that. And I think Newman did a great job and you might not have liked waters, but he did a great job. You might not have liked Harputlian and Griffin, but they did their job. And, and it's an adversarial system. We're not, you're not supposed to like them. You're just supposed to do your jobs. And I, and I think, in this case, everybody did their job well, and, and the right result occurred. And I think you uh, did your job well through the course of this uh, podcast, and we tried to remain somewhat neutral, as neutral as we can be. And when there was a something presented that was good for the defense, or good for the prosecution, or good for whatever, we just balls and strikes, as you used to say, or you do say. Yep. So uh, here's a question from Jamie. Just so I have a question. If the jury had found Alec not guilty— would that mean law enforcement would still have the investigation open and continue to try and find out who committed the murders? Thanks for all you guys do. Love your energy, Matt. Thank you, Jamie. There's some energy. Yeah, so that's absolutely what would have happened. If, if for some reason the jury had come back not guilty, they would keep looking. They might even try to figure out new charges or a new way to, to charge Alec. Or, you know, th- there would have been all kinds of things. and. I firmly believe that one of the reasons Waters took all of us through the testimony of all the financial crimes was that was that was an insurance policy on Alec not leaving the the presence of 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 confinement because he had him under oath he had the evidence and he walked him through it just to, just to show that there was plenty of criminal evidence and criminality and he, and he, and he made Alex admit to all of the different pieces and parts of the crime. So he, he was never going to get out once that trial was over. Okay. Um, let me see what I have our next here for you from uh, Jill. So if I don't let you know how happy it makes me when I get alerts, there's a new episode of impact of influence. I've been listening since day one and I feel like you two are practically my neighbors Maybe that's because you're in my AirPods when I take walks around the block. The episodes with John Snyder have given me great material to discuss with my husband, also a lawyer. Oh, he doesn't practice criminal law. We rarely talk shop in the past, but I think he's impressed with some of the things I've learned from your podcast. Keep producing your podcast. Whatever topics interest you will make great content. You both do an amazing job of being professional and informative, yet friendly and relatable. As a mom of three college kids, I'm so impressed with how Seton has grown into the role. In fact, she's inspired me to pursue some interests that have been on the back burner until now. Thanks, Seton. Share, thank you for sharing your lives at Jill in Naples. When Seton gets back, well, she'll listen to the episode, I hope, and she'll uh, hear that one. All right, so this from Susie. I'm definitely not a Dick Harpootlian fan, but Jim Griffin seems to be a reasonable attorney. With all of the clear and obvious evidence, it's hard for me to believe that he doesn't think Alec did this. It has to have at least entered his mind. How does that work for an attorney? Maybe at the beginning he believed him, but at some point he has to have questioned his innocence. How does that work for an attorney? Do you take on a client you believe is guilty? If you find out they are guilty at some point during the course of your representation, do you continue to represent them? What does John Snyder say about that? That is a great question, and that's a, that is a frequent question for folks that do criminal defense work. And the answer is, it's not your job as their lawyer to believe them or not. Your job as a lawyer is to advocate on their behalf and to hold the state accountable 
to the process that the Constitution demands, beginning beginning and end. So um, it, it doesn't really matter whether your client did the crime or not. What matters is, did the state do its job properly in investigating the crime and affecting the arrest? And so that's m- my approach. I know others, maybe they're less cynical, maybe they have a different view of original sin than I do, but ultimately it's not about whether your client did or not. For, for instance, DUI cases, most of the time your client probably has been drinking <laughs> a lot of times. It's never like a, a, a mistake of uh, your, your pH balance just makes you smell like a brewery. Yeah. Like typically there was some alcohol that was consumed prior to driving. So the defense lawyer's job isn't whether you were drinking or not. It's 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 whether the state did all the things, did the test right, did the arrest correct. Then, and the reason that's important and that focus is important is because you don't want to lose your perspective as their lawyer to give them bad advice because you've bought into their story. If your client tells you, oh, I'm innocent, you're like, you are so innocent. You You're going to ignore you know, glaring signs like a bloody fingerprints that match your client or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I, I personally, not every defense attorney feels this way. I feel like when you're doing that job, your role is to, to be focused on the state and whether they did things the right way. When you're a prosecutor, your job is to hold, you hold people accountable, which sometimes means you dismiss cases because they weren't, done right. The police officer missed something. There was a, there was an error in the process. And so a good prosecutor will dismiss things, even though the person might be guilty because the the constitution wasn't followed. And so when you come at it from a constitutional approach, I think it makes it easier. And you're uh, quite honestly, you're less disappointed when you, (laughs) when, when juries decide not in your favor in criminal trials. You always want to make sure the government's not just steamrolling people. And also you, uh, and, and, and the prosecution is looking for the truth, not a conviction necessarily. The truth is the key, right? That's exactly it. they're, They're presenting evidence that they believe fits the crime that's charged. They're not trying to get the the guy or gal that's charged with the crime. Okay. Let's uh, get this question. Susan, uh, talking about, uh, Alec Murdoch was not present when the jury made a visit to the Moselle property. I was under the impression that the defendant is supposed to be present when visits are made to the crime scene during a trial. The defendant needs to be present any and all of the proceedings that involve his or her case. I thought I remembered hearing that during the OJ Simpson trial, and I know that he was present during the jury visit to the murder scene and Rockingham estate. Uh, what about that one, John? So I think in that case, that's a discretionary ruling for the judge. Remember, both sides had already closed their evidence at that's, that point. That's a key, right. And yep. so he, a substantial right of his was not being affected during that visit. And so I think that's, that's going to be why Judge Newman ruled the way that he did. Now, that, that may pop up as an issue on appeal. Since the defense had rested and the state had rested, there was, it, it, it literally was, you all drive down there, see what you see. That's it. There was, there was, there was no comment. There was no testimony given. 
So I, I think that's why the court did that. That's a very important thing. They were not allowed to talk to each other. They were not allowed to ask any questions. They could say something to Judge Newman, but they couldn't talk to law enforcement. They couldn't talk to each other. So I'm sure that's completely different than if you're having some sort of testimony done during the visit to the location, right? Correct. Okay, so um, we've had this one a couple of times uh, from a couple of different people, but it was basically why was Buster in the courtroom and John Marvin uh, and his family members? Whether you like someone or not, they still have rights as a victim and their sister-in-law or their mom was murdered. And so that would be the reason that they're, they were there. They also, once they, once they testified that that was it, they have a right under South Carolina law to, to have been there. And I, I think that was appropriate. Very good. Uh, any uh, other comments, uh, Mr. John Snyder, as we, uh, Hopefully you'll join us when we find the, the next case that we're going to dive into. I will be ready for that, and I will let you guys know when we have our my podcast up and going. We've got some good stuff in store for the listeners if they like politics, and looking forward to, to answering any questions in the future. What's the name of the uh, your pod? The Nerd Caucus. The Nerd dun, dun, dun. Caucus. Very nice. And, of course, you're working with the fabulous Dwayne, our producer. The amazing Dwayne and talented. Uh, thank you, Snyder. Thanks, guys. Call me if you need me. Okay, bye. All right, bye. I want to give a shout to Kevin Steele, U.S. Army firefighter. Kevin, thank you so much for serving our country, first of all. And second of all, thanks for uh, listening to the pod and your really kind words. Uh, Seton will be back next week. We've got an episode coming up with Joseph Scott Morgan, who's a forensic pathologist, still at least one more Murdoch episode because he really dives deep into the scene of the murders and how he breaks them down compared to how the defense and the prosecution did. We're also looking at some other cases. We will be getting into the Stephen Smith case. People asked about that. We wanted to see how some things uh, shook out. Uh, Stephen's body has been exhumed. I hope Sandy gets the answers she's looking for and justice for Stephen will be soon. And we will talk about that uh, in an upcoming week. Again, MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk soon, friend. Something is creeping. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. 
And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. 